We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. minutes a day 365 days a year this is the pack a day podcast welcome in everybody to another edition of the pack a day podcast youtube edition this is episode 395 and as you can see we are not collectively andy herman but uh i think all together as a group we can probably get close to the the cachet and information that Andy usually brings you on the, the YouTube version here. Uh, as you can see, it's uh, me, Janelle Mackey, and Eli Berkovitz, usual to every other Tuesday crew on the Packaday podcast. And uh, we are joined by a very special guest. Janelle, would you like to introduce who we have and kind of give us a little backstory? Yeah, so super excited to say that we are joined by former Packers guard Mike Wall, played with Brett Favre in that era. And yeah, just kind of excited to get his insight on things. Excited for the opportunity to um, have him on our platform. His rep reached out and we were more than happy to have him here. So we're going to kind of talk about his playing career, a little bit of insight on what he thinks about the Packers today and just kind of what he's up to now. So Mike, if you want to introduce yourself, that would be awesome. Um, just Jen, you make me feel so old when you say I play with the Brett, in the Brett Favre era. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me. All right, I, I forget that sometimes I date people when I do that. <laughs> I'm so old that I, when I see the the Nelson jersey with the I can only see the seven. And my first thought was Jim Nelson because that's the guy who got drafted oh. in 1998. Uh, Jordy Nelson. That's it, just yeah. putting, put everything in perspective. Yeah, it's it's been a long time, but I had a great, I had a really, really wonderful experience with the Packers. I played there from 1998 to 2004 and had an ex- uh, incredible experience. Kind of starting out when Reggie White's last year there when we were coming off two Super Bowls and then going all the way through. I think I was, I, I left. And then I think Brett maybe played one more year. They were four and 12 drafted Aaron. that whole cycle started. So um, <clears throat> while we didn't win any uh, championships, definitely had some good times, good stories, great players and a uh, wonderful organization. So always, always glad to talk Packers. Yeah, Mike, I, I, that you kind of hit on the first thing I wanted to talk about was you being drafted into that Packers locker room in 1998. And as you said, they're coming off of two back-to-back Super Bowl appearances, you know, winning the first one, losing the yeah. second one. So, you know, so the, the, this is a locker room that has a culture established. You coming in as a rookie, and not just a rookie, but a rookie that's now, you know, trying to protect 
the you know one of the best quarterbacks in the league what what's that what's that feeling like as a rookie and just kind of talk about that that locker room as a whole coming into there after the the back-to-back Super Bowls well sure I mean first first things first when when I showed up Brett Favre was only three-time MVP so the story's already a lot of the story's already happened right Reggie White's you know arguably the best defensive player of all time and so when we when I got there and I came out of the Naval Academy we ran the option offense so when I got there I literally had never taken a professional like lineman stance and pass set in my entire life. So my, right. like my first foray, and then I was, I was a supplemental draft pick. So I, I didn't have any of the mini camps and I held out for three weeks and there's a whole story there, but like my first day on the job, I got my stance for the first time in my life. I got in what I called like a professional lineman stance. And I took like 12 pass sets in a row. And it was Gilbert throwing me over the Santana, dropping me to death, Reggie clubbing me, Bonnie Holiday, the first round pick that year, hit me up. Billy Lyon, get, I mean, everybody got me like three times. Nobody else, everybody else had the day off. And <laughs> it was just, it was a, it was eye-opening to see how talented, obviously, everybody was coming from a, a smaller school in a smaller situation. But walking into that locker room with the set foundational leadership that they have with the personalities they had, with the success that they were accustomed to, you know, I think the biggest thing that I learned by being part of that group was this. You'll see a lot of, in movies, this happens a lot if you haven't played sports, but if you played sports, you see a lot of people trying to manufacture emotion when they get into a, a confrontational situation. And it happens a lot in football because we're ultimately, a lot of people are heard about getting showed up or actually getting injured. So we manufacture emotion. We play loud music. We bang our head against the wall. We yell at each other. There's a lot of emotion that is just kind of manufactured in order to kind of get ready for that moment. And what I learned by playing with those guys that were also accomplished already was that if you were good and you prepared, you could just go out and be good. You didn't have to manufacture. You didn't have to be a tough guy. You were a tough guy. And you could just enjoy beating the hell out of other people, enjoy time with your, your teammates, and, and enjoy that whole experience. You didn't have to kind of you know play Pantera and, and, and bang your head until your blood showed up on your forehead before a game to get ready. That was probably the, the best the best gift they gave me because I think that played out over the, the course of my entire career. So it almost sounds like it was beneficial for you to come in with that that solid base in the Packers and it kind of helped elevate you in right away, which kind of is um, one of my questions, which was having a different mindset when you're protecting someone like Brett Favre versus other quarterbacks. You know, obviously you said he was already a three-time MVP Super Bowl champion. So obviously he's somebody who's extremely important to protect. So do you have a different mindset as a lineman protecting him no. versus maybe other quarterbacks? No, not, no, really you don't. I mean, you got to remember, you know, a lot of that, the, the, the anxiety and the pressure that you feel is all internalized regardless because it's the job you have to do. Mm -hmm. Now, externally with the media and, and fans, obviously it's Brett Favre's three-time MVP, but it could be you know, the guy who's selling groceries down the street, it doesn't really matter if he's playing your quarterback. You know, it's my job to do the best job you can to protect him. So, yeah, we don't feel any right, – let me put it to you this way, to be fair. If he went out of the game and you were the reason, you knew it was going to be – you know, it was going to yeah. be bad either way, but you knew it was going to be that much worse than the papers. Like, I'll, I'll never forget when I – when I I was playing really bad my, my third year. I had no technique. And I was a turnstile. I was playing left tackle. And we went up to Detroit. And I got beat three times, sack fumble in like the first quarter, first, second quarter. And the next game, I, my, my wife's at the, uh, at the YMCA in Nashwabanon. Um, and I roll in to say hi to her. And she like hides the paper. And I'm like, oh, what's, what's up? And I already feel bad about myself. 
and she, and she like she she like turns back the front page like I'm on the front page and just basically saying what a piece of trash I am because <laughs> I've been so bad I'm getting I'm getting the three time MVP hurt so there is that side of it but like when you're in the moment man you just want to do your job yeah I think that's important too you know you just got to go out there and do your job and so you kind of mentioned you you were tackle but I think you were listed as guard so I kind of um kind of looking at the you really are dating me right now yeah (laughs) I mean just kind of looking at you know we see a lot of versatility from the linemen especially in these first five weeks with the current Packers so I was just gonna kind of ask if you know how versatile did you have to be if that was something you could do or was that maybe less common back then or obviously you played both but yeah you you, well it's you you get in you get in where you fit in you know, mm-hmm. when you come into the, when you come to the National Football League, very very few players are are kind of a, a one a one trick pony at, at the lineman at the lineman position. Now, some of you, Penesul got drafted this year. Uh, the guy out uh, seventy out for a um, uh, really great player out of Northwestern. He's playing for the Chargers now, playing at an extremely high level. And I'm embarrassed that I'm, I'm forgetting his name, but those guys are going to be left tackles regardless. Like fifth player, fifth pick in the draft, seventh pick in the draft. But most guys come in. It's like okay, you can play center. Great, can you play guard? Great. You play tackle. Can you play guard? Can you play guard? Can you play tackle. Now, w- with me, I, I was just – I didn't really have a position because I played left tackle in an option offense. So when I showed up, it was like, put your right hand down, put your left hand down, do whatever you can. I think now what you're seeing, because of the specialization that happens in sports, the idea that we play more than one position on the offensive line is maybe novel now to, to, to the younger generation. But – we, it was the expectation for everybody. You see, what, honestly, what a what a great job Instedovich and those guys are doing from coaching the offensive line over the Green Bay, and that's why they're having so much success despite all these people being hurt because those guys can't play multiple positions. They obviously take time to not only learn the structure, right, but learn the technique. Yeah, I mean, that was that was something I was uh, thinking about, just let's say in specific when it comes to Elton Jenkins, who has literally, you know, taken snaps at every spot across the line left to right, right to left, I mean, just everywhere. And it's just so incredible. So, you know, is that something that you think maybe, you know, 20 years ago guys were doing, or is that something yeah, now absolutely. that? Yeah, they yeah were, absolutely. They yeah, we, yeah guys were doing it. Like Mike Flint, our center was our best backup left tackle, you know, to put it in there perspective. You go. I mean, it's just, that's yeah. just how you just, you find the, what you try, what an offensive line coach is trying to do is find the best five guys that are healthy. And you yeah. just make it work, right? Like you could, like Billy Turner played left tackle last year. I mean, you just, you just find who are my best five guys. I'm not going to leave that guy on the bench because we have two centers now. Like it's not going to happen. Somebody else, yeah. he's going to go play somewhere else. And it's the versatility that you are afforded by having a good coach who's developed many players is a real luxury in situations like this. Because I'll be honest with you, if you looked at all 32 teams, you're probably looking at 12 to 14 of them that have that luxury. And the rest of them just don't have the the development process from a coaching staff perspective that that the Packers do. So it's almost yeah, like so we we glamorize it down. more than like for you. Absolutely. Your yeah. mindset is you know this is the expectation, and then us as outsiders just watching, we're kind of like, oh my gosh, look at him playing three different positions on the line. So for you, that's the ex- that's the expectation, and for us, it's you know a little bit more glamorized. <laughs> Yeah, it's not it's not that it's not a big deal. I'm not trying to minimize it. Like it's not easy to play different positions, right. but at the same time it is it is the expectation you sit in that room, that's what you do. Yeah, um I I, th- I don't know who said it. I feel like it might have been like Jason Peters, but there was a famous there was a, a very good tackle who I think played most of his career on the right side and then had to transition over to the left side. And I believe the the quote he used and I'm paraphrasing, but he's like he said it's basically as if <laughs> 
you spend your whole life, yeah, you spend your whole life wiping your ass with your right hand, and then you switch yeah. to your left hand, and it's like yeah. a totally different kind of thing. And you know, I would just imagine, you know, when you're in that stance, and especially at the tackle position, you got to be so quick off the snap and get back in that stance to switch sides. I mean, is it? Do you think it's more mental or physical, or guys? Sometimes it just comes naturally to offensive linemen. Well, I mean, physically, phys- everything's driven by your mindset. Everything's driven mentally. You know, we, I mean, the physical, like, if you think about it, if you have two working legs, it really shouldn't be that, that, that difficult. Right. But it is, yeah. but it's just being able to do that transfer and whether or not, honestly, it, some people it's going to come easier than others, but it's just like anything else. Like if you take enough reps and something to make it automatic, you're going to be able, you're going to be able to do it without thinking. It's just how many, how much time you spend. How much like, how do you have, are you doing a little, like the best coaches will do a little bit every week. Like, They'll say to Villanueva, for example, they might go, hey, you need to take five, ten snaps, right tackle snaps, not even maybe in practice, just over on the side every week just to keep that going, you know. But if you don't do that and all of a sudden you're thrust over there, yeah, of course it's difficult. I mean, I remember Earl, you you guys, Earl Dotson used to come down with migraine headaches. We're playing the Broncos. I'm left guard. We're playing the Broncos. Literally, we're kicking off the ball and they're like, yeah, you're right tackle. <laughs> in that, so first snap, I go play right tackle in upper up in Mile High Stadium, and you're just going. That's just it's part of the game. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just part yeah. of the game. You know, it's like it'd be like the X receiver going to the Z receiver, I suppose. I mean, to put it in context, it's not yeah. really that different. Mike, I got a question that I, I'm I'm interested in as a, as a a guy who is enthralled by the technique of offenses, but. And I, I'm I'm awful at actually understanding everything. Um, playing in an option offense in college because I I, yeah. I I I called a lot of like high school games and these smaller high schools run this option and it's like I I liken it to watching the Harlem Globetrotters play basketball because like if you watch yeah. NBA basketball you know they're running they're running an offense but then you go and watch option offense and it's it's almost like watching like a like a pseudo version of it because it's so different. So coming from an option offense into the NFL, you kind of mentioned it about like not having a, a natural stance. What what are some of the pros and cons that you kind of felt that in the college game playing an option offense that you kind of gained by playing that moving into the NFL? I would say now the only, I mean, the pro of going to the Academy was that I had a great strength conditioning program and I had a real good mentor in, in Phil Emery, who was later the you know general manager of the bears and worked for the, uh, the Falcons for a number of years. And my, my coaches there were fantastic, but I think if you look at it from, from the professional side, transitioning from the option to like a pro game, I think the only pot, if there is a positive, the only one might be that I didn't have any bad habits to break because right now, if you, if you went and looked, if you went to, you know, if you looked at a hundred different division one colleges, and they were running all these different offenses. You ask like the pro coach that they're going to, if they like what that player is doing from a technique standpoint. Probably the answer is probably no. There's a lot of things they want to correct, and I didn't. I had nothing to build on, so it was you, know, you start off fresh, I guess. That would be the only. I mean, that's the only thing I could think I of. Like, everything else, everything else was so different. Like you said, you're right. in a tight end stance, you're just firing off the ball, you know. Right. Like that's like the the, the like that's almost a it's almost like a perfect scenario for a coach because you. You kind of just have a blank canvas, and you can kind of you, you've got the raw athletic talent there, but you just kind of mold it however you, however you want. Yeah, and, and I always say, listen, you don't learn how to block and tackle walking down the sidewalk. Like these, these are things you basically have to pay a ticket to go do. So if if I really want to work hard, and I have a good coach, and I'm willing to develop, and everything, like I can 
I can catch up to everybody else who's just not willing to work that hard. And that happens in the NFL as well. I can catch up pretty quick, but drafting a guy and then saying, okay, like we're going to make this work within, you know, two weeks or three weeks, whatever it was between the time I actually signed and the season. That's, that would be, that's a tall order. It, it would be tough. It, it's a, you develop, you're definitely at that point, you're definitely a development project. Yeah. And so obviously you spent, um, the bulk of your career with the Packers in the beginning, but you did end up leaving, going to, I believe it was the Panthers next, and you ended up being a pro bowler in your yeah. first year with them. So do you feel like there was something different in your play or was it, you know, this no, no. or just <laughs> no, not at all. The year? <laughs> yeah. No, what happened was the Packers finally, the Packer fans finally voted me into the pro bowl. It just happened when I wasn't a Packer. <laughs> oh. that's, honestly, that's all that happened. The, the, the three years prior, I, I felt like I was playing at an extremely high level and I was always like first alternate, you know, you know bridesmaid, never the bride thing. <laughs> and I found out that, you know, we have the PR guys and I found out like I wasn't even in the top 10 in fan votes. And I was, you know, top, top three or four in, in players and coaches votes. So I was never top 10 in fan votes. Mm -hmm. So when I left and a couple other players left and the Packers went four and 12, I, I think like my theory is that the Packer fans are like, oh, wow, he was he was pretty good. And they, they all voted me in that year. I don't, I, honestly, I don't think I can't see any other difference. It, it took the bad record for them to take their blinders off and realize. Sometimes, you know, yeah, some, and... <laughs> grass is always greener idea, right? Never, never underestimate the power of the Packer fan voting base. I mean, they, they got Donald driver, a uh, dancing with the stars title. Yep. Like, listen, it, the, the best thing the Packers fans ever did is they voted Jeff Saturday into the pro bowl when he got benched. I mean, yeah. I've never in my entire <laughs> life, I've never seen anything like that. And like we nobody ever talks about that. And I'm sure like if you asked, I don't know him very well, but I'm sure if you asked him, he'd like, you know, he'd smile about it or whatever. But because he was a great player, he had a great career. But I remember just going like the Ohio State yeah. kid just and it was like Lindsay, Lindsay took over, right? And then it's like, oh, he made the Pro Bowl. It's like, well, that, yeah. that pretty much shows you what the Pro Bowl is all about. There you go. Yeah, I mean, that was something I wanted to ask you. Like, do you believe that stuff like Pro Bowls, you know, should be maybe taken? out of the fans' hands? Because in my opinion, you know, like you said, it, depending on the fan base, if you have a really good one or maybe not such a strong one, that could end up being the deciding factor in guys getting Pro yeah. Bowls. And while, number one, it's, of course, a great honor, but also you see in contracts, Pro Bowls definitely play a part. So I've always been under the impression that, you know, fans, you can vote, and if at the end they want to show how much the fans voted for, that's fine. But I always thought it should be players, you know, coaches, execs. They're the ones who should be voting for stuff like Pro Bowl because that's that's a real honor. And I just think that a lot of fan bases, you can just, you know, go and vote a million times in a row for a guy who's clearly not as good. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on the Pro Bowl voting process. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I, and you would get a different answer from different people. I just wasn't like, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't really identify as a football player. I love playing football. I love the process. I love the prep, but like when I went home, I just want to hang out with my wife and my friends. I wasn't really, I, I didn't interact. I, I just, I wasn't looking for fan votes and there's guys that really, really work hard and worked hard to get those votes. So those guys would tell you, absolutely. I think the fans should vote because it's advantageous for him. For a guy like me, I would always say, well, let's just leave it up to the, the players and the coaches. Cause I would, you know, I think, I think I would have gotten a lot more attention if it would have been that way, but I understand why they do it. It's, it's really for the fans. Ultimately. I mean, this whole game is for, you know, to, to, to make sure that fans are watching. So I get the interaction, but like when they put the pro bowl voting onto Twitter, that was just another level of absurdity because now they're actually having like Twitter campaigns yeah. to vote for guys that I'd never even heard of. Or, you know, you watch them on film, you're like, come on, this, this guy's like two, two bad sets from the bus stop. So you tell me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what that's just what I've always thought that they need to maybe clean up the Pro Bowl voting process. But one other uh, question, you know, as you mentioned, you know, developing and guys playing different uh, different spots on the line. But early in your career, the Packers drafted both Chad Clifton and Mark Tauscher, who obviously went on to have great careers with the Packers. Clifton being a two time Pro Bowler and I guess just, you know, what, what was it like, you know, you were already there seeing them come on and that, and their progression into the players they became, because, you know, even now over a decade, you know, since either of them have played, you know, I still very much, uh, you know, appreciated and remember seeing them and watching them play, obviously you as well. But, um, but yeah, I guess I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, on Clifton and Tauscher and how they, progressed so maybe so quickly into that offense yeah so so we're all the same age I just came I came out a year early and they stayed for a fifth year so like I was two years ahead of them but they were we all were kind of in the same boat 
um, as, as okay. age wise. And, and I just remember when I think it was Fulmer was the Tennessee coach at the time. And we had the same agent. And um, he is it Phil Farmer? Is that right? Am I thinking about that right? Tennessee coach for Chad? It must have been. And I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, well, the head Tennessee coach for coach. the head coach for Tennessee back in the day had called my agent and say, "Hey, listen, this is the best lineman I've ever had." Right? It was he right. was that kind of praise? So we kind of knew coming in that he was going to be really, and he was just he was special from day one. I think I want to say he got in like an ATV accident, like fell off an ATV. And like banged up or you know bruised his leg or something, so he like missed two weeks of training camp. And as soon as he came in, everyone was like, "Oh, he's gonna be amazing!" Because I was fast <laughs> and he could take three kicks for my like when I could only take two. Like he was just that much more athletic, and he was 330 pounds. He had, I mean, you guys talk about AJ Dillon's thighs now, but you see Chad Clifton's size was like <laughs> unbelievable. And then Tausch, and then you know honestly, so he he was really that good from the jump. He was kind of the same guy his entire career, and I would really say the same thing about Mark Tauscher. You know, he was one of those guys that when he got drafted, you you have this you have this idea that they might be drafting him because he's kind of the hometown story and blah, 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 blah. He's a late round pick and his name's gonna be in the paper. Great. But Vonnie Holiday was playing left defensive end for us at that point. And I remember going to training camp, mini camps, everything, and like Mark, he never lost. Mark he just never lost. Wow. And his technique wasn't what like you couldn't teach anybody else to play like Mark Tauscher. He just has this weird center of gravity and core strength and we you could never teach the technique you know he stepped underneath himself he just a lot of things were not optimal but i've never seen a guy just be able to get the job done over and over and over and you remember when you guys probably don't remember but when when reggie went to carolina we played him on monday night football and reggie and mark was a rookie and reggie spent basically the entire night trying to club mark tauscher and Mark Tasher was a rookie, didn't get a club once. Like he get, he and wow. he was literally like he'd get up on like one foot and get back down and lock him down. He was just he was just this immovable force. And um he was that way his entire career, man. Those guys are I, I love playing with those guys. That whole group that we were with with Marco and Mike Flanagan, we're very, very lucky to spend time, you know, being a really good line for a couple of years with those, that whole group. So um those guys were amazing though, certainly. Yeah, that uh yeah, that being able awesome. to go out and stop Reggie White, that's gotta be one of the highest praises an offensive lineman can really have. And that kind of transitions into kind of a question I had for you. If, um, you know, who was kind of, aside from Reggie in practice, who was your toughest matchup or somebody you really struggled or maybe didn't like facing when you were in games, you know, somebody who made it really yeah. tough for you. The best, the best player in the league back then was a guy named John Randall. He played for the Minnesota Vikings, a defensive tackle. Um, he went, he was out of like uh, Texas A&I. He went to the same school as Earl Dotson went to. And, you know, he came up playing against when he when he showed up in the league, he he wasn't the best player in the world, but he kept he just kept working. He was a dog, man. He he played against this guy, um, Randall McDaniel, every day in practice. He was a Hall of Fame all pro left guard. And Randall just got him so good. But by the time like kind of Brett was becoming the thing, the three time MVP, John Randall was his number one nemesis. Like everyone remembers Warren Sapp because Warren Sapp talked a lot of trash and wanted to get on TV and John and Warren Sapp was amazing too. But John Randall was like John Randall was somebody that you thought about getting sick before the game because you're like, Oh man, it's like back in the day they used to get like Aaron Donald linemen get sick. They have like Aaron Donald flu because they don't want to play him. Yeah. Right. John Randall was kind of like that. And that's well, something John, you have to see twice a year. So yeah. John Randall, he was, wasn't he famous for putting the, the Brett Favre Jersey on the tackling dummy in Vikings Probably. practices. Yeah. He, yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah, he, he was a bad sticks, man. man. He, you know, he, you know who he was like, he was like a, he was like, like Bart Scott right now, like radio personality. Why he was just that guy is like a ton of energy, like super quick, 
witty, but then he could, he could, I'm just telling you, he could play like there's Aaron Donald's, Aaron Donald's the most unbelievable defensive tackle I've ever seen. But John Randall's like number two. I mean, he was, he's that good. Some That's, high praise for Donald. I mean, yeah. yeah, Aaron Donald to be a defensive tackle and like to be that size, it's almost like he's like compact and like strong with quickness. I mean, he's like the full, full package. And yeah, to be able to dominate, because usually when we're talking about the sack leaders, it's coming off the edge. But for it to be a defensive tackle when he's getting doubled and even triple teamed at times and he's just burning through it, yeah, Aaron Donald is uh he's like a different breed right now. He's a different kind of cat, no question about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you you did mention uh, you know, uh, I think Jen mentioning, you know, you uh protecting Brett Favre, obviously you know, that that in, in itself is a big job. But as we all know, Brett Favre was quite the personality. And, you know, we've seen the mic'd ups and, and the sound effects and all the fun stuff that the NFL's put together. But for you personally, what have been, you know, some of the funniest, you know, mid-game, like on the sidelines or even maybe in the huddle, Brett Favre moments that like stuck out to you? Like, like this guy, we might be playing a very serious game of football, but he's out here just playing and having fun and just unlike anyone else. Well, the so usually when you're playing, I mean, not a preseason. A lot of stuff you see is during preseason games when he's like kind of just hanging on the sidelines, right? Especially in his younger years. But like during a game, you know, we're pretty, we're trying to be serious at least. But I do remember <laughs> there was a there was a game, and the game was we were winning. It was we were playing against Detroit at home, and uh, I think it was Alonzo Spellman had just moved over to Detroit. He was he'd been in a couple places, but he was in Chicago and he went to Detroit. And um, Alonzo Spellman was one of those dudes that. He was, he was like 320 pounds with a six pack. Like he was a scary human being to look at. And he's also one of those guys that he had a little bit of a temper. So he wasn't playing, he wasn't like starting for the team. And he was one of those guys that weren't really worried about at this stage in his career, unless there was like a fight going to break out. And then you were very, very like not worried, but like, okay, I just need to know where this guy is. Right. So I forgot if it was a screen to Amon or something, but the ball's going downfield. All of a sudden, like Brett's sprinting down, sprinting down, sprinting down. And he just chops out Alonzo Spellman's legs. And Alonzo Spellman was like, he was like prison big. Like he was big up top, not, you know, little, little short <laughs> in the legs. Right. So he just went, he just went right, hit the deck. And the, the litany of like swear words on the back to the huddle and Brett's over there smiling. Ha ha. And it was one of those things where this is what like quarterbacks and Steve Smith used to do this in Carolina. Like they talk trash to like the defensive lineman, but he was playing D end over like a right tackle. And I remember, I think it was Mark. He's like, Hey, thanks a lot, Brett. Real nice, man. Like, yeah. I got to deal with this problem now, you know? Like, sometimes the skill position players, like, don't understand when you make somebody else angry, like, the consequence, it's not that we're worried or nervous or anything, but it's like, let if, if he's going to be angry, let him be angry at me. Don't make him angry at you, and then all of a sudden, I got to deal with it. But that was that was Brett for him, man, as an instigator. Yeah, it's yeah. like that bodyguard mentality, though. He can do what he wants, and we got to kind Brett, of clean up for him. The one thing, I don't know how it is with Aaron, but the one thing with Brett that was always kind of it's funny is that he could literally get away with anything. He could have done anything to you and you'd be like, ah, man, you got me. Whereas like, anybody else would do that. I mean, we're going outside and fighting. Like, you know, but that's, that's part of being a quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so I guess kind of just kind of staying on the teammate thing. I just kind of want to know before we transition into kind of your thoughts on the current team, just kind of when you spend time with the Packers, maybe who were those, go-to teammates that maybe you spent the most time with or yeah. had the strongest connections, maybe on the offensive line or different position groups, maybe coaches or personnel, just kind of who, who were your go-to people there? 
Yeah, when I got drafted, um, I just thought the world – like, we had, we were lucky. So John Dorsey, John Schneider, um, you know, uh, 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 Wolf, like, all those guys were there, right? And then I'm not – well, so Ron Wolf was the GM, but then later on, yeah. he showed up. So – and we were just lucky to have this really cool group. And, you know, after games, everybody would be over at Anduzzi's, and you guys probably know Stance yep. is still there. And, and we'd all be hang- – I mean, it was just – it was a family, you know? And the offensive line that I was with, Mike Flanagan, Marco Rivera, uh, Chad, and, and Mark that you already discussed, Kevin Barry, we were just – and Gray Rugemer, who's the player engagement guy now, we were just all very, very close. We lo- we like spending time with one another. And But if we were over – you know, if it was after a game or somebody was having a party at the house, like all the DBs would be at our house. Like we used to throw poker tournaments. All the DBs would be at our house, running backs. Be, I mean, everyone would just come over. And that's the great thing about Green Bay that people don't understand is, one, you all live within 10 minutes of the stadium. So it's like – you know, when I moved to Carolina, you could be 40 minutes from the stadium south, and somebody else is 40 minutes from the stadium north, and you're never going to see them outside of practice. But it's just such a unique environment to be able to kind of meld and have, really have a team, that team unity and structure win. I love the guys I'm playing, or I played with there, but, you know, really that offensive line, like if we would spend the most time together. Our, like our wives are all friends still. That's awesome to hear, just kind of that, that lifelong connection you guys have built with one another. And, you know, it's always special to hear kind of, you know, you watch them on TV, but you never know how they are off the field. So it's nice to know that the team that you love and watch, they're all best friends too. So I think that makes it that, that much more special knowing that the team is that close knit. Yeah. So it was, it was a, it was a great time. It's a great time to be young and, and playing football. That's for sure. Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yeah. So I think, um, unless anybody else had any questions about kind of your playing career, we were going to kind of transition into just kind of some thoughts you had on the team. Now, I think Eli put together some film. I know it sounds like you like to do a little bit of film breakdown. So those are some things that we're kind of going to transition into with the next part of this interview. Uh, Yeah. So real quick with uh, the play breakdowns. So the film breakdowns, I'm having a little bit of some technical difficulties. So they're not, to to necessarily my my general liking but hopefully the idea gets across but um i mostly took from just this week's Bengals game and okay. obviously in that game assuming you know you, you saw at least the end or what was the end different times but the never-ending end of that game and how wild it was <laughs> but you know the the packers playing without David Bakhtiari, without Elton Jenkins, without Josh Myers, just a lot of moving around and putting people in places that they necessarily, not necessarily would always be playing. So I just, you know, looked through it and thought I found some interesting clips. So mm-hmm. one person who I think he's making now, uh, Sunday was his third career star, Josh Nyman. And uh, yeah. he's been, for the most part, really, really impressive. So here's a clip of him, you know, in, in run blocking, just showing his ability to get, get to the second level and just showing some of that speed and quickness that you need uh, in, in the NFL, obviously, as an offensive lineman. And with, with StreamYard, like sometimes it doesn't let you like stop or rewind. So if, we re- if I have to replay it just to like slow it down, I'll sure. do that. But here's the play, and then we can discuss it a bit more. But uh, as you see, it should oh, – is it not coming up? Because I don't see it. Oh, yeah. No, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was right, perfect. So. There you go. So you have, you have Nyman and Mercedes Lewis on the end there. You get Nyman on the block, and then he gets up to the second level to 57. And then, I mean, A.J. Dillon being being quadzilla definitely helped in this specific play. But, do, but just to go back to the beginning again, just seeing Nyman bounce off that first block and then get to the second level, like 
you know, how, how difficult is that to be thinking, I got to block the guy right in front of me. And then I also got to get to the guy behind him as well. I can only imagine, you know, just mentally how much that must take. So that's that's what we call like a backside C block, right? Because he's working, the left tackle's working with the tight end. So first of all, Mercedes Lewis is like, for the last decade, he's been the best blocking tight end in the NFL, like hands down. He's he's yeah. he's, he, he's unbelievable. When he was with Jacksonville and I was with Miami, I, I would make most of the teach tape about like how tackles and guards should block with Mercedes Lewis. He's that good. So, I mean, he is because his wow. footwork is impeccable. So the thing about Yoshi right there is his footwork is really, when you want to look at it, if you want to see if a, a team is really well coached in the offensive line, you look at their double teams and you see how they pass off blocks. That is a hallmark of a really well coached team. And you see the way that, so that's a backside, that's a double team block, right? He does it. He basically takes that six inch timing step horizontal. It doesn't go backwards. Cause if you go backwards, your second step is going to be short. And you're going to be high into contact. He goes a horizontal second step straight up the field. Like you're on railroad tracks and you hit, you strike same foot, same shoulder. So when you strike with you, you know, if you put your left foot in front of your right and you strike with your left shoulder, there's a stronger kinetic chain there. So you're going to be able to deliver more power. Okay. With both feet in the ground. So he does a great job of hitting with striking on that second step, kind of low to high. And then that allows Mercedes Lewis to come through and drive, drive, mm -hmm. drive, drive, drive with getting both hands in and kind of take over that block. So now all he really has to do on the second level is make sure that the linebacker, I mean, you'd love to just knock him and flat back him, but what you really have to do is make sure that he's covered up. So the running back has options, right? You just yeah. don't want to like give the linebacker one side. You, you don't want to force an angle on the linebacker because the linebacker is a better athlete. He's going, to be able to, he's going to be able to stick and shock you and then go play into the tackle. So what yours does a really nice job of is just really trying to cover up the second level so the linebacker kind of loses sight of A.J. Dillon and then right through the hole. Yeah, so, I mean, it's that now that you brought up uh, Mercedes, I mean, I was going to ask, you know, just in general, Yeah. You, I mean, yeah. It, just as a blocking tight end, at least for sure since I've been watching, I don't think I've seen anyone better. Um, yeah, was there anyone maybe, you know, while you were playing that was like you would compare Mercedes Lewis to at, as, as a blocker being a tight I mean, end? We had Bubba Franks, first round pick out of Miami. Bubba was amazing. Like, like just a, a full bag of tool set tight end, man. The guy was, a, he was an unbelievable athlete, um, super high football intelligence, had the toughness. He was an offensive lineman as far as we can con concern. He was just far more athletic and he could block. But I have, you know, for a guy who's like real, a real designated tight end, I mean, I love watching Gronk. I love watching George Kittle. I mean, those guys are really good, and they're good for a number of reasons, and I love the way that like Kittle finishes his blocks and everything. But you guys are getting kind of like older Mercedes Lewis, and he's still top two or three. Yeah. You should have seen him when he was with Jacksonville. I mean, I'm, I'm not joking. He was – I still think he is, but he was, bar none, the best blocking tight end I've ever seen. So that almost makes That's it awesome. a little so extra now, special, kind of getting that multi-year deal with him, maybe in the back half yeah, of his career. Right. You know, maybe people who don't understand the value in him kind of are like, oh, why are they giving this deal to just an old tight end? But it sounds like, you know, aside from just his locker room presence, he is still, he's basically a six lineman. And it's yeah, those little so it's those things that make him that much more special. Yeah, and that you can run so, I mean, when you have somebody like that, because you got to remember the defense still has to respect him as a pass catcher. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're bringing, like we used to bring in Kevin yeah. Barry, who was number 71, he was like 360 pounds. Like he's not, you know, he's not going to go catch passes. Right. So, but 
when you bring in him and then, and then you, so you can bring you two tight end set and he can be the block and tell you can go out for a, a route or they can like first get first play of the game last week versus the, the Bengals. They ran right off Tony and Mercedes Lewis on a double team to the linebacker. You could have showed that play. It would almost look exactly the same. It's the play side because Mercedes Lewis is just, he's yeah. really is that good with his footwork. He's a, he's an amazing player. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that play because for some reason, you know, I was going through all the plays play by play, you know, in the all 22 and for whatever reason, there was like five plays throughout the whole game that simply would not load. And I knew that first <laughs> run by Jones was one that I wanted to highlight, and that play just did not work. But since you brought up Lewis, I pulled up a play from week two versus Detroit that um, showing Mercedes' ability to block. I believe it's right near the goal line. Let's see. Yeah, okay, I don't know yep. why it started in the middle there. The effect. But it's, All right, so yeah, is- you see him. And you see how you see how incredible. he doesn't cross over. I mean, you see, it, it just it, you don't understand because tight ends aren't taught to block anymore. Like you see where Lazard is right there. First of all, hats off to yeah. Lazard, man. He's trying to be like a little tight end now too. Like he's he's a tough he's a tough <laughs> yeah. dude. I, I love I love the way they're using him. And then you see they brought Equimania St. Brown in a couple times to try to run like the motion toss sweep last week, and he wasn't having any of that. Like he didn't want any part of that game yeah. at all. So like Lazard's got yeah. that job on lockdown now. But Mercedes Lewis. Because most tight ends now, they bring you in because you're a receiver. And so what have they done? Like, they, they back them off the line of scrimmage, and they run into the backside. They call it a wham play, and they just cut out the legs of the defensive end. Like, that's like the go-to yeah. play. If you watch that game, they probably both teams probably ran it seven, eight times. But he can yeah. actually inline block and hold his own because his footwork is always so exact. Like, he's you know consistency is really the hallmark of a great player, and he's he's just super, super consistent with his footwork, and that's why he's been so successful. Yeah, it, yeah, it honestly just <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Mercedes just almost looks just like a sixth offensive lineman. And if you weren't a Packer fan, you probably wouldn't notice if his number wasn't, you know, 89. If it was 75, mm-hmm. you would just think he's another offensive lineman. But I mean, with Mike, the number changes, he could be. Line by tight end now. Oh, yeah. He could be number two, I guess. Well, not, no, he can't be two. Mason Crosby will always be two, but. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, those, those chips off the line, which I've noticed, you know, especially because of the injuries, the Packers have been using AJ Dillon, Aaron Jones, and the tight ends to kind of help the tackles get some chips off the line. And we saw one right here on a very big play to Devontae Adams, uh, with Tanyan and Lewis that, as you see, they're both here at the ends and, you know, Tanyan, they both give it a chip and Rodgers hits Adams for about a 35 yard gain. Yeah. And when you're working with younger, inexperienced linemen, I'm sure having the ability to have, you know, some blocking tight ends or even a big guy like AJ Dillon who could really lay a shoulder into a defensive end must help a ton. Yeah. And if you see, so I, I do a trench warfare series on, on my prostitute perform YouTube channel. We do this every week. We talk about just basically the box, right? How the offensive and defensive line are interacting. And, and one of the things we pointed out this week is you just showed it. If, if a defensive end is rushing outside the tackle, but then you line up the tight end or that, that other, that other back kind of outside the end. So he's kind of sandwiched in between. That's the best way to chip because now you Mm -hmm. stand out there and the defensive end doesn't really know if you're going to blindside him or not. So you see that guy's route turns from I'm going this direction towards the quarterback to I'm going to come straight up the field because I don't want to get laid out. And I want to, I just kind of want to take care of this and be the aggressor now. And what all you're really doing is what? You're taking a, a half step or a full step away so that that right tackle in that case, Billy Turner, has plenty of time to sit back and wait for that guy. 
because the, the tackle yeah. just wants to get to his spot. Like we're playing a real estate game. He wants to get to his real estate spot under control <laughs> and before the defensive end does. And if you're going to always, you know, have that threat of getting knocked sideways, right. And instead of being inside out, being outside in from that, from the chipper standpoint, you have that threat from the defensive end. He's going to get knocked sideways. He's always going to kind of face that guy first and that's going to take him off his game. Does, does that yeah, change definitely. your approach as, as an offensive lineman when like the play that I, that I think of when we, when we were talking about that is uh, a couple of weeks ago against San Francisco, where Tunyon absolutely lays out Joey Bosa on, on yep. the chip. So as, as a lineman, yeah, you, you know, you know that the play is coming and sorry, Eli, did I still, did I still your thunder there a little bit? No, no, I was thinking is a Nick, I think it was, it's Nick or Joey on the, on the Niners. It's oh Nick, yeah. Isn't I, it? Yeah. A Bosa. He, he laid out a Bosa. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, as, as a lineman, when you know that that play is is there, that the 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 tight end is there to help with the chip, does that change like how you approach it, or is it is it always just take care of my assignment in front of me, no matter who or what kind of the play is supposed to go? Yeah, good question. It depends where the guy's coming from. If the guy's on the line, you know for a fact he's going to chip. Then you can kind of set for the chip because you don't. What you don't want to do is like get really deep and all of a sudden. The guy actually gets knocked inside, and now he's rushing the B gap instead of the C gap in the, in the, in the case of the tackle. But if he's coming from the back, like the, the running back, for example, you think, oh, he might get a running back chip here. There's a lot of things the running back has to determine before he can actually make that chip. Like, he usually has some sort of blitz pickup responsibility, right? And then when he comes out, yeah. you just don't know how that's going to line up. So in that scenario, you usually just use your normal set because you, you don't want to leave it short and hope that he hits him and then he doesn't. Right. I, I've, I've been in that situation where you th- you're kind of setting for that chip and the chip doesn't come. The guy just runs the angle and hits the quarterback. And you're like, what happened? I thought you were chipping. And you can't necessarily res- like rely on that one every time. But the one on the line of scrimmage that's outside in, that one's the best. Eli, did you have any other any other plays to break down? Um, yeah, I had uh, just just a couple more really showing just kind of the quickness of uh, John Runyon Jr., who yeah, he's um, I'm not sure, was was, was John Runyon's dad uh, playing at the same time as you were, Mike? Yeah, so John so John and uh, God, Trey, I think it was Trey Thomas with the tackles up in Philly for Donovan McNabb back in the day. Uh, John was a great player. John gets a bad rap a lot because Michael Strahan used to have these battles against me, had a bunch of success, and he always like was mic'd up on Monday Night Football when they played. So everyone <laughs> thinks like John got like beasted by Mike Strahan all the time, and it wasn't really that that case. And John had this like incredible career, but his kid's a stud, man. I, I'm such a big fan of his. Like I don't yeah. know what's gonna happen when they bring back Jenkins and Bakhtiari, but man, you can't take that kid off the field. He's a player. Yeah, no, he's, he's been really, really good. So just a couple plays that stood out to me. And a lot of it is really just that quick first step to get in position and beat the defensive lineman. So here's one, and then we can get to the other. Um, yeah, so here you see him, and I think I have it slowed down. And you just he gets out, you know, on the outside of 92 and really opens up that big lane for Dylan to cut back and go right back up in the middle. And we could just, you know, go back to the beginning real quick and just, yeah, how hard is that, you know, to get that first initial step? And, and get ahead of the defensive lineman and knock him out of that yeah. play. Well, it shows what a good athlete is because he steps behind himself, which is like Cardinal sin number one. You lose his leverage on the first step, so it makes it even harder for him to kind of gain ground on the second. But he's such a good athlete that once he gets even with that guy, he can actually press. And 
you know, the sign again of a good offensive lineman on, on an outside play like that is like, can you get the guy off the line of scrimmage? So not only can you get mm-hmm. on the, on the side of him, but can you kind of stay on a track and now you're pushing them for every yard that you can push him vertically. You can just kind of bag or bank that the, the, the running backs can get three yards, you know? So if, if yeah. it's just based on your block, like every yard you get, you're going to get three yards for the running back. So the fact that he's not only pushed him, hooked him, but getting them upfield, man, that's a really, really big deal. It's hard to do in this league. There's a lot of good, de- uh, you know, decent defensive tackles, yeah. and it, it really shouldn't be a thing you should be able to do. Yeah, so again, I mean, just real quick, he literally followed it up. I think this was the very next play he went and did this. Again, so you have him, and then you also see Nyman, but you, you see he gets the quick step, and then you see Nyman at the second level, again on 57 I believe Jermaine Pratt, and this is what led to Aaron Jones' 57-yard run there towards the end of the game. And let's just see the stiff arm here. Boom, get out of my face. <laughs> but also you see Nyman, you know, all the way down the field, you know, kind of like last year when Bakhtiari ran alongside Aaron Jones on that 77-yard touchdown against the Eagles. It was very similar vibes there with Yash next to Jones. But you see, you know, again, Runyon's initial quickness – to open the gap, allowing Nyman to then get out in front, and then he hits the linebacker at the second level. And I just love seeing that effort following his running back 50 yards downfield. Yeah, for sure. You know, what happens is with defenses um, is when you know that you're overmatched, you start moving your linemen around to, to try to beat people into gaps. And so what you saw with that three technique, they had that double team up to the second level, and that that three technique spiked across Runyon's face, hoping to beat him to the A gap. Right, because Runyon got a second step in the ground and was able to just drive him down away. That gives basically Yoshi a free release to the linebacker, and you know you're just looking like size and weight wise, like he's got him, he's got that guy beat for sure. If we're just talking, Aaron Jones is coming straight downhill now; he has to make one cut to go. You're going to be in a really good, like you'll take that ten out of ten times. So that's what happens when a defense feels like their their defensive linemen are going to going to be outmatched by either a double team or a single block on an offensive lineman. They start moving around a lot. And when they start moving around, that's really the opportunity for big plays because now you just think about it like their gaps are so they're not gap sound anymore, right? They're not as gaps, they're not as gap sound anymore from a defensive perspective. They don't have a man in every gap. Huge plays occur. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's definitely yeah, awesome so to see the effort from from those linemen. Just you know, <laughs> the play isn't over till it's over for them. And I think that that kind of relentless mentality to continue to block all the way through. I, I love that mentality from the linemen for sure. Especially I know Eli just kind of mentioned that Bakhtiari one where it's like, I don't know if he ever actually got a block on anybody, but he, he wanted <laughs> to, he wanted to put someone in the ground and I just love watching them, you know, cause it's not every day you see the linemen running alongside the running back. <laughs> so it's, it's just always fun to see them wanting to continue to finish those plays and not just, you know, playing at the line and then whatever happens after that happens. It's, it's nice That's- to see that's why they've been such a great group for so long. I mean, they've gone through a couple of coaches and they've gone through some generations of players now, you know, with, um, you, you had Josh and TJ there, the guard after the, after our kind of my group left and they've just been good for a long time because every, every group that they've had there has wanted to be finishers and wanted to kind of stand out for their, their, their effort as well as their, as their skill. And you really, again, in this league, you just don't see that as much as you used to. And mm-hmm. I think so when you do see it and you do, you just appreciate it that much more. And obviously there's more opportunities, I think, to see it now as far as like replays and whatnot. But 
I, I just love watching him. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm happy for Adam Stenovich and, and he's what the job he's doing and, and the fact that they're getting all these young guys to play so well. Yeah. And that kind of uh, transitions me into, it sounds like you have some connections with current Packers linemen and just kind of um, some of the guys in that room. Um, I know I, I really don't. I, um, okay. I work with, I, I do work with some NFL guys still, but I don't okay. work with anybody, anybody in Green Bay. My connections there are really, you know, Gray Rugermer, Chris Gizzy were my teammates. Mark Lovato is still there. There's a handful of people in the building that I, I still know very well. Um, but, you know, I, I go up there every once in a while. I, uh, as you know, Tony Fisher is, is running kind of the, uh, the, uh, the Packers legends division. So they'll, they'll invite us up for a game every once in a while, but I, I try to keep low profile and, and I, just okay. try to, yeah, I enjoy it from a distance. Okay, so you're more low profile. You know, you work with guys, but not specifically with the Packers. But, right. um, you know, do you – so you kind of mentioned uh, you see some things um, today that you didn't see as much in the in the past or vice versa. So, you know, kind of what are some of the things that you think watching the Packers offensive line today that maybe look a lot different than when you played or are they still relatively similar? I think if you're just talking about the Packers, it's because they're very well coached, because, you know, it's the same dynamic. You have a very talented quarterback. You have weapons at every at every position. You have a very good offensive line. And so you're able to run kind of an offense. And it, maybe in Cincinnati is not the greatest game to show because it was a very low efficient game like that. You know, high stakes, a lot of long balls, mm-hmm. but really an inefficient game. if We're going to call it anything else. Right. And generally when you watch them though they're, they're the way they mix in the play action pass the quick passes the scat the keep passes the different runs with out of different you know formations and motions using different personnel groups like that is all very similar and and the fact that the offensive line here seems to be putting an emphasis on technical mastery so that so that they can be kind of the best versions of themselves and not just try to get through with scheme and kind of grunting and grinding it out wrestling with everybody I feel that that is very similar, but I also think it's very unique to the league. Like the development of all of the positions in general, I think is not where it used to be 15, 20 years ago. And that's a consequence of a number of different things, I'm sure. But really at the offensive line group, and you hear this a lot from scouts, you hear this a lot like during the draft, like these guys aren't ready to play anymore because the schemes they run in college are just almost too simplistic. So would you almost say the Packers still run like an old school mentality offensive line? Where yeah, they still run differently than maybe the other uh, 31 teams in the NFL. I don't know if it's all 31 teams. I mean, certainly you look at the Cleveland Browns and the way that they're performing and yeah. they're a real special group. But also, I know for a fact that like they prioritize technique over everything else, right? And that's what and they base their their scheme and everything off of, off of their lineman's ability to execute. And that's when you have a really that's when you end up having a really good team. Like one of the reasons we were successful was Mike Sherman was an our head coach was an offensive line coach. And so he understood kind of what it took to be successful at that, at that level. So we were never put in positions where we just knew that we couldn't execute, but we were forced to do it anyways, because it might look good for one of the wide receivers or something like those things really don't work out long-term. Yeah, for sure. So I think um, before we kind of move on to kind of where you're at now, you know, kind of focus a little bit less on, the football and more life after football. If anybody else had any questions, the only one that I kind of was curious on with, you know, just kind of, you're, you're still a fan of the Packers. You still watch them obviously. And I was just kind of curious as to who, who is one of your favorites to watch maybe in more recent history, whether it's, you know, obviously everyone enjoys watching Aaron Rodgers, but maybe because you watch the game a little bit differently than we do, maybe there's somebody else who stands out. So I'm just kind of curious as to who your favorite guy is to watch in, in a green uniform. 
Well, I mean, we talked about Mercedes Lewis. I, I love him. Bakhtiari is one of my favorite guys to watch because he's he's unique in the way that he sets, but he's also like he's found like the most efficient way to set as well for at least for his body type. Um, I love watching Z Smith. I mean, for me, that guy, the way first of all, the way that he came in and just he almost single hand. Not, that's not fair, but he was had such a, a large part of changing the culture of that not just the defense, but that team. And the way that they operate and just bringing that whole like Baltimore Ravens kind of mantra back to a team that had lost its identity a little bit on the defensive side. Like, I just, I just love the way he competes. I love the way, I love how confident he is. I, you just the swagger he walks around with. And then I love the way that he plays. Like, I just love his skill set, his physical. He looks like Julius Peppers to me, the guy I played with in Carolina, like from a physical standpoint, just a really, really rare athlete that's still, you know, still improving on his craft so he's probably my favorite guy to watch on the team like he's, he's a popcorn guy for me i'll get some popcorn watch him yeah we definitely missed watching him this year for sure but you know that he's doing as much as he can on the sideline and he does have that leadership role i mean he was a captain so quick with this team you know that he he kind of has that expectation for him so hopefully he heals up quickly and he comes back ready to feast and so with that, I think we're going to kind of move into just some life after football stuff. And I think Dan has a good transition question for that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's I think it's the perfect one to lead off with. And I've gotten a chance to talk with over the last year or so uh, with Joe Thomas a couple of times about this and brought this up with him. And, um, you know, the hardest part about leaving that locker room, you hear guys talk all the time about, you know, the, the hardest part about leaving the game is leaving that locker room or, or leaving everything there. And Joe, Joe talked about really, it was the schedule of having that schedule of, mm-hmm. of you come in here, you come do this, this, and this, and your, your day is scheduled out all the time. What was it for you? The hardest part about leaving that locker room for the last time? Gosh, that's a great, a great question. I, certainly the routine is a big deal in, in, you know, I think one of the reasons that my transition, like I didn't feel like I was, I was too taxed on the transition was that I, I, I've tried to maintain a routine the entire time because I knew I can't operate any other way. Um, that routine is a big deal for a lot of guys. So I think when you look at kind of across the, everybody that does retire, you kind of put them into two buckets, right? People that kind of try to maintain a routine and people that don't. And the people that don't more often than not will ha- kind of struggle for a long time because um, when you when you grow up, not even since the professional level, but college, high school, even probably when you were younger for a lot of these players, like you know where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. The best thing about routines is that we can be present in the moment. Like we don't have to worry about anything. And when you're present in the moment, you can be the best version of you. So all of a sudden you're walking around, you don't have to be anywhere. You don't have to do anything. Well, it's like they don't know how to get to that best version of you again. Like, what does that feel like now? How do I how do I get there? And I, I think that is very difficult for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, for me, the hardest thing is Gosh, just a locker room is a very unique place. And you, there's, there's things, there's, we always talk about locker room talk and the, you know, the, the way you, the jokes you make and, and the, the, the friendships you, you, you build and you give people a hard time and this and that. Like, that's fun. That was fun for me. And, and I, I miss that a lot. But I think you know, more than anything, when you put kind of everything you've got into preparation so that you can go out and compete at a high level and then all of a sudden you can't do that anymore – it's very hard to fill that void. I think it's very hard to fill that void. Yeah, I would I would imagine after a whole career and really a whole life of like you said of just constantly everything being scheduled out and planned and you've got practice then and workouts then and the games then and and it's just and then all of a sudden and you know most people, you know, aren't necessarily quote unquote, you know, retired, you know, in, in their 30s, maybe lower 40s, so it's like 
how do like what do I do with my time now? So I guess I mean Dan, you know, kind of covered it, but yeah, just I can imagine it must be very difficult for a lot of guys at maybe the age of thirty-five years old, you know, and and technically maybe you know they don't have to work another day in their life, but all of a sudden it's like, you know, no one's really going to be too happy doing absolutely nothing with their life. So it's like, how do you make that transition? Like you said, you know, you've always stuck with the routine and. Obviously, you know, I'm sure that's great for you both physically and mentally. And yeah, just imagine the, the guys that that fall off from a routine and kind of just go into that laid back lifestyle of like, I'm done like working and I've, I've done it. And now I've, I'm good to kind of like coast the rest of the way. It's like probably doesn't work out that well because you realize pretty quickly when you don't have any structure in your life, like it, it's just not a great feeling. Yeah, the rest of the way is a long ways. I think that's what people don't realize. You know, it's not like it's like you pack it yeah. in at 30 years old. Yeah, definitely, 40 definitely years old. Found, uh, yeah, like anyone's too old. But that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's just so rare yeah. that, you know, someone will be technically retired, you know, in, in their 30s. And then it's like, well, for the next 50, 60, 70 years, like, what do I do with myself now? So I'm sure that must have been difficult. But another, you know, interesting thing that I've always wondered about after a player's career is obviously the physical toll it takes on your body and and stuff like that. So I don't know if it's specific to offensive linemen or maybe players in general. What would you what would you say is probably, you know, the the the, the part of your body that maybe has taken the, the most the most hits, the most hurt, and you've still had to rehab after playing and just constantly maybe a nagging issue yeah so my ninth year i was playing in carolina like life was pretty good for me at that point and i pulled down the line running a counter gap play and hit some backup linebacker with my right shoulder my shoulder exploded and um, i had certain bad surgery bad rehab um came back the next year and then i went to uh, seattle the, the year after that blew it out again that's how that's really why i retired and so i i can't um that pain is still there every single day can't move it very well it's, you know, it, it like it does affect your long term kind of uh, quality of life, I guess. So like in my yeah. case, this, this this does kind of affect your quality of life. Um, but I, I, you know, it's it's and it's different for everybody. You know, I didn't think a shoulder injury was going to end my career. A lot of people would just assume it was the knee. But now you see like ACLs are, you know, they're a little more commonplace to be able to rehab and, and, and have surgery out of. So, you know, I, it's, I think it's a it's a tough question. But, you know, generally, especially with offensive linemen, you just start looking like head down to the guy down the back of the spine. You just start thinking there's a lot of kind of connections there that happen. So, you know, when you think about how much cartilage is left in your back, things like that, it's probably not as much as you'd like. Yeah. And so yeah, the back <laughs> is the one I, is one I would think, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Man. No, I mean, I feel like even uh, non-athletes, you know, we all complain about our bodies as we get older, but you guys really take more of a physical toll. So um <laughs> But just to kind of, you know, wrap up the whole conversation, one of the things that I think was really important to touch on is just kind of what you're doing these days. It sounds like you're keeping really busy, which is awesome. You know, a lot of different projects. And there's a couple of things that obviously catch our eye, which is um, so you are a development specialist and you have also become an ambassador for the Hall of Fame Behavior Health. So those are yeah. a couple of really interesting things that I don't think a lot of people, myself included, really know or understand. So I just kind of want to hear about what those are and how you got involved and kind of maybe the motivation and passion behind joining those programs. 
Yeah. So I, you know, the first thing I run a, a total athlete development platform and, and like when I got back in the league coming off of retirement, I was out and I was in finance for a couple of years. I went back in, I just had this itch to be around sports again. I, I really, really enjoy being around athletes. And I just saw there was this athletes of today are kind of lacking the tool set that they need to become elite. And whether that's because of, you know, development at a younger age or how we treat these guys, social media, time spent in the building, there's just a lot that is missing now. And so I put together a platform that helps aspiring athletes, actually from professionals all the way down to preteens and any, you know, any confrontational sport, we put together that give you the tool set to become elite, to kind of reach your ceiling. And that really focuses on three things, mindset development, technical mastery, and what I call ownership decisions, which are decisions based on the best interest of future you. We spend a lot of time just working on those three things and how that kind of builds out, not only the, the athlete, but also kind of the best version of you as a person. So we run that program in, in conjunction with the, the, the process to perform player development podcast and all those things. But I got to uh, I got the opportunity to talk with with Lisa over at Hall of Fame Behavioral Health. And, you know, right now, mental health is a huge issue. I think that's even coming into the forefront more than it did, I think, during kind of the concussion phase of this discovery period with the NFL. Um, I personally know retired players. My wife knows a ton of retired uh, players' wives that experience some sort of, you know, I mean, listen, the, the stat that Scotty Graham, the NFLPA rep, used to give us, now he's a coach, running backs coach at the University of Arizona, but he used to give us the stabs, like 80 or 90% of, of, of retired players after three years, either either dead, broke, or divorced, right? And I don't know how they wow. came up with those stats, but it's a really, really high number, right? And you see that a lot of guys have a hard time transitioning away from the game and, and, and being part of the limelight or whatever that thing, whatever that thing that drove them for so many years. And now that it's gone, it's very, very hard, like we said, to fill that void. So, you know, my impetus for, for one to help with the behavioral health platform was just that my hope is if somebody can you know see that my name's on there and my face is up there and it's like, Hey, I know that guy, maybe I, I don't mind reaching out to him. Like I can reach out and talk to him and, and, and I feel comfortable because I know Mike, I know Mike's story. You know, I'm, I'm, I, he was a locker room guy with me or I saw him on TV, whatever the case may be. Like if that helps and prompts the activity to kind of get stepping in the right direction, we can kind of point you to somebody that can maybe help you long-term or even start that conversation. It's just a, it's just a really, really unique platform. I think that hopefully can help, you know, the, the people out there that are struggling. Yeah. And I think that especially in today's day and age where we're kind of starting to create more of those conversations about, you know, taking care of your mental health a little bit more. I think mm -hmm. you being able to create that platform to help people have those tools, whether it's, you know, when they're younger, learning to develop it or, you know, as the older athletes start to retire, kind of teaching them those ways. I think that's that's just incredible to hear. And I think that it also helps, you know, by having someone like you helping them, it kind of makes it seem more normal or like stable or and okay to have those conversations like hey here's a former athlete who also understands you know what it's like to leave the game and they can help you kind of understand in a way that you know someone like me dan or eli will never understand because we've never had to step away from the game at the the level that you have so i think that that's just it's awesome to hear and it's incredible to kind of know that people are putting those projects together because i know I, for one, am a huge mental health advocate. So to kind of hear all the different ways that people use their tools to help others, I think that's just awesome. Yeah, it, it, like you said, it's just so hard, I think, for people to come out and and want to put a label on themselves. Mm -hmm. And so anything we can do to kind of make that transition easier for just, just for a discovery period. So we're just willing to have a conversation because it, it doesn't start without that first phone call. 
And so if we can just prompt people to start making that first phone call, then, you know, sky's the limit. Sky's the limit, certainly. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And uh, appreciate you taking the time, Mike, for sure, to st stop by and talk with us about all of this. Um, is there anywhere that you want people to to read your stuff or, or reach out to you or anything you want to just let people know where they can find you? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, so Amon Green and I, Packers all-time leading rusher, we do an On My Block podcast now every week, just once a week. It's usually out today, actually, and we'll review that last game. We get way off topic, though, we digress a ton. We talk about like we like we talked about this week about um, about a couple of things on Monday before like the John Gruden thing came out. You know what I mean? It's just like so it's it's it, it'll be it's an interesting podcast. If you like football, if you like kind of insider breakdown and analysis, there's that. Um, we do the trench warfare series YouTube backslash process to perform dot uh, process to perform. I have my player development podcast, which is at process to perform dot com or anywhere you find podcasts. And then again, if you ever want to hit me up or anything. Uh, at Unrivaled ESS on Twitter and Process to Perform on Instagram. Yeah, well, thank you again, Mike. We really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to kind of give us your insight as a player and just as a former athlete. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on our platform and kind of speak your mind. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sold at gyms. My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.